Okay, he's back, Bert Lyko, our great friend, our attorney friend. We're going to go out into the deep water and get really into something <laughs> that everybody says it. Everybody uses the terminology. I'm pretty sure none of us are on the same song sheet trying to figure this out. We're going to be talking rights with him. Bert, how are you today, my friend? I am doing very well, Andrew. It's, uh, it's a gorgeous day out here in the Northwest, and I hope that it's at least that good for you. That's quite the office view you got going there, my friend. That's uh, fantastic. Little, little place called uh, Silver Falls. Yeah. Come on, come on out. We'll take a walk there. Famous waterfall. Uh, he says it as if it's easy to walk up there. It uh, is not. It's a little bit of a hike. Mm-hmm. Um, no pun intended there. All right, buddy. Here's what we're going to do today. I We've been batting this around for a couple of weeks. I want to get into it. Here's why I want to talk about rights. Because look at all the news headlines we've had lately. Um, gun control, gun rights, Second Amendment. First Amendment, online, uh, Twitter, Elon Musk, abortion, uh, personal rights. That goes back to privacy rights. Goes to other. All this stuff boils down to arguments over rights. But I'm pretty sure that everybody in America, if you take 50 Americans and ask them to tell them what's your rights and what does rights mean, you're probably going to get 45, 50 answers. Does it seem to you as an attorney, as somebody who's actually studied this, do we have a good consciousness in our country of what our rights actually are other than just the buzzwords of saying this is my right or that's my right? You know, the buzzwords that we hear out in uh, out in the culture, if you particularly if you get out on social media and listen to people talk about what their rights are, um, they often really boil down to I get what I want. And that's that's not a principled way of approaching the idea of what rights are. Uh, You you need some idea of what law is before you understand what rights are. Uh, This is getting into some political science stuff. Fortunately, I have a political science degree before, uh, before heading on to law school. So, you know, let's take a minute and think about what the law is and that'll inform our idea of what rights are because rights are a part of the law. Um, there's a lot of different judicial philosophies out there, but there's really uh, three and a half big ones. Uh, the first one, and, and this is what uh, judicial philosophy really is, not talking about uh, liberal conservative stuff, but, uh, but how do judges approach what the law is? A lot of them and the framers of the Constitution were big subscribers to the idea of natural law. This is the idea that there's some sort of a grand, pure law that exists uh, somewhere in the universe, a, a platonic form of the ideal set of laws. The ideal law is a coherent whole. Um, perhaps, uh, perhaps you believe this comes from God. Perhaps you believe that this is a function of uh, what it is to be a human being and what it means to be a human being living in a society. Perhaps it just comes from uh, notions of morality. Uh, if you want an example 
of how we can take a very abstract airy concept like natural law and make it real, go to your state's vehicle code and look up something called the basic speed law. That's a good example of natural lawyering made real. You should not drive your car faster than is safe for prevailing circumstances, is roughly how the basic speed law translates. That doesn't give you a number for how fast to drive, but it does give you a concept. And if you get a ticket from a police officer for violating the basic speed law, everyone in that court, when you show up to have that ticket adjudicated, is going to know what they're talking about. That's one way of approaching what the law is. What is a right if you approach the law this way? It is something that is inherently yours. The grand natural law bestows upon you certain privileges, certain uh, abilities to do things. And the positive law, the thing that humans actually do, lawyers do it, cops do it, uh, judges do it, people involved in, in the legal professions and uh, institutions implement law. Uh, they are bound by those rights and they must respect your rights. Maybe even other private individuals need to respect your rights in a natural law system. Compare that with its great competitor, the, uh, the school of law that's called positivism. Uh, positivistic law says that law is the will of the sovereign enforced with uh, legitimated power. Uh, so this divorces the idea of what law is from morality, from some sort of a perfection. It says that law is a human phenomenon. It is something that people do together through their institutions, through their government. And therefore, your rights in a positivistic system are going to be different from place to place based on who the sovereign is. Um, we say sovereign, uh, you know, the idea was first thrown around uh, back in the days of uh, absolute kingly power in European nations. So the sovereign was easy to identify. He's the guy with the crown on his head. In a place like the United States, it's a little harder because we have divided our sovereign up into a lot of different governmental institutions, but you can use a formalistic legal analysis to figure out whether a rule that has been handed down by one of those institutions constitutes an enforceable law. If natural law is the basic speed law, positive law is the posted speed limit. Uh, the sign that says 35 miles an hour is the positive law that tells you how to drive. So here, here's the push-pull of that, not to interrupt you for just a second, though. The reason we have to have that is because what well, you're talking about the law, where it comes from, the second part of that coin is who enforces it and the push-pull, especially when it comes to America, and as we'll get into with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution and Bill of Rights and all that, is you have a government and you have people. The government has rights and the people have rights. And I'm, I'm really simplifying this, but that ratio you know, more power to the government, less rights for the people, more rights for the people, less power for the government. Balancing that ratio, that's really where you start getting, well, which theory are you going to to try to balance that ratio? That's where all this heads and where it all kind of gets real icky in a hurry, isn't it? Uh, among other things, uh, there, this is an area where I will caution you to be careful with the construction of your sentence. Uh, 
you will hear the idea of a uh, a state's right or the government has the right to do things. Right. Um, it's um, I, I take great exception to that. If I have a contribution to make to uh, to all this taxonomy, it's that governmental institutions, uh, the government, uh, does not have rights. Period. Uh, they cannot have rights under any of these systems. The government has power. The government has the ability to go out and send uh, men and women with guns to make you do things. That's what power ultimately is. Uh, we legitimate it. We say this is an okay thing to do under certain circumstances. But, uh, but ultimately, um, as, uh, as, as Mao said, power comes from the barrel of a gun. Uh, not that I wish to hold up Mao as a uh, admirable figure. Well, I mean, we've had the divine rights of kings that you already touched on, and now Mao. So we're off to a great start discussing rights. Uh, Bert mm -hmm. Blanco joining us. Talk about that power, though. Um, government power, it's the line in the Declaration of, the, of Independence that everybody goes to. Um, it's probably where everybody, when they think rights, if they have any kind of education in American history at all, it's probably the first thing they think of. You know, we are all men are created equal, endowed by their creator, unalienable rights, life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And then the very next line that everybody skips when they do life, liberty, and pursuit of happiness <laughs> to secure these rights, governments are instituted among man, derived their just powers from the consent of the governed. Just that sentence there and everything you just said, that's years worth of legal theory to try to straighten out. But we're doing this in real time, trying to discuss what our rights are what the government can and can't do. Like you just said, the government's got a lot of authority right up to and including taking your life at the barrel of a gun when it comes right down to it, as we've seen too often with law enforcement. Where do we start deriving how to explain to people what their rights are with that much umbrella over top of it? That line from the Declaration of Independence requires a ton of unpacking. Uh, let's Let's just start with one of those phrases, the one that people like to uh, like to invoke, inalienable rights. Um, what does the word inalienable mean? Uh, it does not mean that these are absolute rights. It means they are non-transferable. It means that they are inherent in yourself and can't be given to someone else. But it doesn't mean that these are absolute rights. And that's why the institution of government becomes important. If I have an absolute right, then that means that I have that right over you. I have the right to do a certain thing, whether you like it or not, whether you object to it or not, and your rights don't matter. Well, that's not how you build a society. That's not how you build people living together peacefully. That's not how you build people um, being equal to one another in, in any sort of a fundamental way. Maybe you don't think people should be equal. Maybe you think the king should be better than everyone else. Uh, that's one way to have a society, I suppose, but it isn't a particularly lawful one. It isn't one that I think most people would want to live in. They are good attorney friend, Bert Lyko, more on her tell right after this. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry, but it's funny you mentioned that because 
the two great documents of our society, our country, Declaration of Independence, the Constitution. We don't talk about it enough in history, but there was an intermediate step that got us to the Constitution, the Articles mm -hmm. of Confederation. And what happened and what people sometimes miss, and I forget too, I had to go back and look, was we had a, we had a lot of democracy. We had too much democracy. The democracy became tyrannical, just not to be too overly blunt with it. And they had to go back to the drawing board and go, okay, this isn't working. We need something else. And then you have, you know, Matt, you have the Virginia plan, which basically morphed into the Constitution as we know it now. So just inherent rights and the institution by man of government, even our founders, they didn't get it right the first time. And I think that's something important to note. Like we, we sometimes hold up the founders as like these perfect... No, no, no. They actually botched it the first time around. We had to do this all over again. And there were some learned experiences in Shays Rebellion. And there's a lot of history you need to go into there. They didn't get it right the first time either, even that system we have with our rights now. And the rights got curtailed and changed. And the way the government was formed was very different than what they probably thought it when they did the Declaration of Independence, wasn't it? Well, let's, let, let's think about some taxonomy here, too. Uh, we often use the phrases the founders and the framers as though they were interchangeable. And there's a lot of overlap. A lot of the same people were both founders and framers. The founders, you should think of as the people who signed the Declaration of Independence, the people who created the United States of America as a political entity. And the Declaration is a political act. It is not a legal one. The Declaration of Independence contains no law. It is an important document because it creates the country. It is uh, the organic source of the United States of America. But the law was created by framers. These are the people who signed the original constitution, the unamended constitution. Uh, framers crafted this as a law. And what it is, is not some holy writ created by people acting under divine inspiration or trying to set down rules for all time. Uh, they were very clear about what they created. It says so right in the document. The Constitution is the supreme law of the land. It is a law. The Constitution is a legal document. It is a legal document that is the result, as you correctly point out, of a political decision to say what we are doing right now under the Articles of Confederation isn't working. We need to do something different. And then the result of a lot of political compromise. Uh, you should think of the, the framers creating the Constitution as no different than the politicians of today trying to create a major piece of legislation. There was horse trading going on. There was log rolling going on. Uh, all of the kinds of deal making, all of the kinds of uh, political interactions that we either like or dislike, depending on whether we like or dislike the politicians, go, went into the creation of the Constitution. It is, uh, it is the sausage that got made in Philadelphia in 1787, and the sausage-making process was not pretty. Yeah, and for people who might recoil at that a little bit and say, oh, well, that's a, you know, well, you're not being respectful, that's a pot. No, because they actually, if you read the history on it, and I did before we had this conversation, they didn't actually gather to write the Constitution and form a new government. They were actually just going to do some tweaking on it, and Madison and the Virginians hijacked the whole thing and went, okay, let's try to do something big and radical here. And they did. But there was a lot of, uh, slavery is the big one that almost, you know, hijacked the whole thing, almost brought it to a screeching halt. There was states' rights issues. Uh, the biggest one was actually taxes and property uh, ownership. That was the big thing of the day. 
when we're talking rights, let's start with that one because it's the very first thing they did with the Bill of Rights. It was the thing that is the most in the notes and the letters and the contemporaries materials of the day. They were absolutely obsessed over taxes and property rights, justly so because of what happened during the revolution. That's kind of the start of the discussion of rights as they formed in the Constitution was property rights and taxation powers, right? And they adopted a, a system of government. They adopted a phrase that says life, liberty, and property can't be taken without due process of law. Well, what does that mean? What, what, they, they agreed on those words, but what do those words mean in practice? They did need a government that was going to be able to levy taxes and send people out to go collect those taxes and enforce those taxes if need be, uh, because there was no military that was left to defend the country if, uh, if Britain decided they wanted to take the United States back at some point. And or did if, try. <laughs> uh, they, they did try. And, uh, you know, well, they got Washington at least for a little while, but uh, that wound up being an, another draw. Yay us. Uh, Bert Lyko joining us. We're getting into some deep stuff on rights, where they come from, especially here in America. We're going to take a quick break, come back. We're going to start working through these actual rights. You've heard about them. Uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom of press. What do they actually mean? Where does it come from? The black and white legal and the practical as it stands today, our good attorney friend, Bert Lyko, more on her tell. Bird Lyko is back with us on Herd Tell. We're out in some deep water, but this is grown folk talk that we got to talk about our rights, where they come from, what do they actually mean? Not the buzzwords online when people just don't get what they want. And it's the me first and the gimme gimme crowd. What does it actually mean to have rights? Uh, we did a little bit of the history. I really encourage people to read up on how we got our Constitution because the way it was written, that didn't happen in a vacuum. It happened in a sequence, and the sequence is really, really, really important to understanding why our Constitution got written the way it was. Good, bad, and indifferent. It's not perfect. Um, please do read your history up on this. But it brings us to the Bill of Rights. Um, initially, this wasn't going to be a part of the Constitution. This is one of those making sausage things you mentioned. This was the compromise. Uh, to get the Constitution done, they had to do this Bill of Rights. Um, so let's just talk about that and get that out of the way before we talk about them individually of when we're talking rights in America, especially politically and legally, usually we're talking about the Bill of Rights. That's kind of the foundation. How important was it that this got into the Constitution right from the go? Well, we wouldn't have a Constitution without it. Uh, there's a very large faction of people who were we, we now identify under the name anti-federalists. Uh, I think the most prominent among them was a, uh, a politician from Virginia named George Mason. And uh, Mason and the rest of his allies said there need to be limits on the federal government's power over individual people because we have rights. Remember, all of the framers were steeped in uh, Enlightenment era notions of natural law and human beings possessing natural inherent rights. You'll see that language pop up again and again from the Declaration through the Federalist Papers, through the Anti-Federalist Papers, which are also important to read. So uh, Mason and his allies argued that the government could run roughshod over these inherent rights. The response from the Federalists, from Madison and his allies, was, I think, pretty weak catch-up. 
for instance, the Establishment Clause. Uh, the, the Establishment Clause of the First Amendment says that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. Now, we need to understand what they meant by an establishment, but uh, for, for shorthand purposes, let's call it an official religion of the country. Madison argued, well, there's no specific grant of power to Congress to create an established religion, therefore Congress can't do it. And Mason said, no, that's not good enough for us. We don't trust ourselves, this group of politicians um, um, among which he was uh, a, a participant to not do that uh, because a lot of people when given power will create laws that say we win, we get our way. So if there are more congregationalists than any other kind of religion in a given area, like say in Massachusetts, they will establish an official religion. Congregationalism was the established official religion of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts for about 60 years after the constitution was adopted. So he, he was probably right about that. He demanded, um, he and the other anti-federalists, it wasn't just him, uh, demanded that in order to get their agreement to ratify the Constitution, that a Bill of Rights be immediately passed that limited the power of the government to do certain things that were important. Twelve were originally uh, written. A total of 11 have been adopted. Uh, the first 10 are what we call the Bill of Rights. I want to pause for just a second because on this, on this program, we covered a, a piece in uh, Diplomatic Courier a couple of weeks ago. Uh, where they did this index of freedom across, and this isn't one of the BS ones. This is one of those where they actually put some thought into it. It's not one of those, oh, freest countries in the world and, you know, Iran's number three or whatever. It's, this isn't one of those. But they were talking about the resilience of societies and cultures and nations. And they made the point, because I think a lot of people kind of wonder or they never thought about why religion was number one on the First Amendment. And then you get freedom of press speech. Those followed after religion. Why is that? And this is modern day. This is right now. And they talked about one of the biggest indicators of a resilient society is the freedom of the press and freedom of religion and that they have to go together and work together. Now, that sounds weird to us because we always think, well, it's freedom of speech and then freedom of religion and free. We have a different order. And they said, no, 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 because the press is the accountability and the religion is how much leeway the government's going to give you to think. And that's the indication of the resiliency of a society and a government is how they handle those two things together. And I find it really interesting that in the modern times, even that's still true, that they put religion number one, because religion, you know, we we are the great experiment in man's self-governing. Religion is how men try to kind of figure out their place in the world on top of it. It's really amazing how those things all go together and they put it first and it's the third word, what the third or fourth word in the whole thing. That's all very, very purposeful. And let me underline that a little bit by pointing out a lot of the things that you do with, um, with your religion, uh, with your religious institution that you, that you affiliate with on a voluntary basis. Uh, those things are protected by the First Amendment, uh, but they are probably protected by expression rights rather than religious rights. If you are, for instance, a, a Mormon or a Jehovah's Witness who is uh, required under your doctrines to go out and spread the good word and proselytize. Proselytizing is protected under freedom of speech, not as an exercise of religion. If um, a, a, a whole lot of what you do under your the, the the cloak of a religious activity is actually freedom of expression. 
in both of those groups, the Mormons especially, they had their periods of persecution in this country because of their unique faithness. This goes back to where we started with rights again. You know, rights is always going to be a push-pull thing. Where does your religion, <laughs> it's not, not even proselytizing, but it's like, you know, the Mormon faith will have a different thing than my Baptist faith. Our Catholic friends are very different from our Jewish friends and a uh, Muslims, different sects inside of Islam may not get along with the other sects as we see all too well in the world um, because of the rules that goes right back to where we started with rights. There's always that push pull of where does my rights stop and where do they go to you and where do they have to stop on you before they infringe on you? And that's the eternal debate, isn't it? Let me propose my construction, my my own contribution to the discussion of what legal philosophy is. Your way of understanding rights is that if you are acting within your rights, it is a sphere of activity where you hold the ultimate decision-making power. You are the one who decides at the end of the day uh, what is going to happen. Will I... Uh, vote for a Republican, a Democrat, or will I vote at all? I am the one who decides that. Ultimately, you don't have the power over me to make me vote a certain way. Uh, the government does not have power over me to make me vote a certain way. Therefore, when I choose whether to vote and how to vote, that is me acting autonomously. I hold the autonomy. If it's a question of the government exercising power, the government is the one who exercises ultimate autonomy. I do not have a choice about whether or not I will pay my taxes. If I choose not to pay my taxes, somebody from the government is eventually going to come along and say, uh, too bad, Bert, you are going to pay your taxes, and we're going to be taking that money directly out of your bank account because you do not have the ultimate authority here. Who has autonomy? If it's the individual, we are talking about a right. And if it is the government, we are talking about the government's power. Your right ends where the government's power begins and vice versa. The law tells us where that boundary is. And crafting the law is a complex task because we live in a complex society with a lot of individuals and we want to maximize the amount of rights that people have. So how do we create laws that allow people to use the maximum amount of rights available while still having an effective government? How important is, because we're talking a lot of individual rights here, when we're not having effective government, how much does that really affect our rights? And I know we see it easily, you know, you're an attorney, so you're, you know, more on the criminal justice, civil litigation side of it. It shows up there really, really fast when government isn't effective. But even in our day-to-day lives, we saw this some with um, the unevenness of COVID lockdowns and how some of that was done and how it wasn't done and how government exercised power it normally doesn't exercise. We saw how messy that was. Inefficient government really runs into rights in a great big hurry, doesn't it? Here in Oregon, we are having a very significant problem 
uh, with the, our criminal justice system, particularly with publicly appointed counsel for indigent people. Uh, the, um, the state of Oregon has picked a way of providing counsel for uh, indigent criminal defendants to stand trial. And uh, mostly it farms out uh, criminal defense work to attorneys in uh, public interest law firms that then assign out what are public defenders in, in, in practice. I have uh, some colleagues here that I office with who make the majority of their money by doing that kind of work, getting a public appointment to do defense for, uh, for indigents who have been, been provided state counsel. Well, there hasn't been enough money put into that system, and frankly, the system is not being run particularly efficiently or, uh, uh, dare I say it, competently. I don't want to disrespect people who I really think are trying their best, but they are not doing good enough. I have uh, one colleague who offices two doors down from me who hasn't been paid a dime in four months. I have a paralegal that I work with who hasn't been paid a dime in six months. She's living off of her credit cards right now, and that is a totally unacceptable state of affairs. There are thousands and thousands of legal professionals who are providing Sixth Amendment defenses to people, and, um, and they're not being paid to do it because the state has incompetently put that system together and is continuing to run it incompetently. Uh, so what's the result of this? Uh, the result is judges are finally getting frustrated, uh, and the lawyers are finally getting frustrated. Lawyers are saying, I'm not going to take on any new court appointments. Uh, here in, in Multnomah County, uh, the city of Portland is most of the county, and we are seeing a lot of criminal defendants get arrested, get arraigned, and then they're supposed to be appointed counsel. They aren't for months and months. And judges have become so frustrated, they are starting to dismiss the criminal charges because the state is unable to proceed and meet its obligations to these criminal defendants. This is not fair to the victims of those crimes who deserve to see the people who have, um, who have done things to them go through the justice system and get such measure of justice as is, uh, is due to them. As a, as a way to round this off in the few minutes we got left, uh, Burr Lyko joining us, our great lawyer friend, frequent contributor here. He also writes at Ordinary Times once in a while since he uh, formerly helmed that, and he's been a great <laughs> mentor and friend to me in that regard. Let, let, let's round it back this way, talking about just that. I'm going to say really inarticulately because I don't know the, and you put it in the terminology and make it all lawyery and pretty, but I'm just <laughs> going to say it the way I feel it because I don't know any other way to do it. How do we, what you just discussed is one part of a much bigger problem. How do we discuss in the United States of America in the year 2022 with social media and with everybody in the information age and all the other mess with it? How do we have the conversation of people understanding that, yes, it's important to protect other people's rights, even people you don't like, maybe especially people you don't like, that you have to protect their rights? Because if somebody doesn't have rights, nobody has rights in the way our system is set up. And you have to care about that because I find a shocking lack of care about other people's rights in the media and the advocacy we do and the writing we do. I find a shocking lack of people understanding the fact that like, yes, it matters if some, even a, the worst of the worst criminals, if their rights are stripped away just under the guise of, well, they're a bad person, eventually that trickles down to everybody else. How do we have that conversation with people on a practical level? Because all these big words we say, government accountability, uh, reform, political, whatever you want to call, 
doesn't it all kind of just start there with understanding of everybody has rights and we need to all collectively understand those rights and advocate for them equally and better, at least better than we have been? We need to have that conversation with empathy and we need to have that conversation like grownups. Uh, I am not impressed with, uh, with the social discourses measure on either of those indexes. We need to understand that the law is supposed to be there for everyone. And if the law isn't there for everyone, it isn't there for anyone. Uh, Robert Bolt wrote in A Man for All Seasons quite a long time ago in a dialogue between uh, uh, Sir Thomas More and William Roper about um, uh, Roper's desire to eliminate evil from England and, uh, and, and Moore challenges him. What would you do, Roper? Would you cut a great road through the law to get after the devil? Roper says, yes, I would cut down every law in England to do that. Oh, well, when the last law was down and the devil turned around on you, would you hide, Roper, all the laws being flat? This country is planted thick with laws from coast to coast, man's laws, not God's. And if you cut them down and you're just the man to do it, Roper was the man to do it. Do you really think you could stand upright in the winds that would blow? where the forest used to be. I'd give the devil the benefit of the law, if only for my own safety's sake. Moore is absolutely right. And this may be the only time and in the only context that you will hear me praise uh, Sir Thomas Moore, who I am actually not a great fan of. Uh, but, uh, but he's absolutely right about that. If the law is not there for these criminal defendants in Oregon, and you know we're not mostly talking about murderers and rapists here. We're talking about, uh, you know, meth dealers and car stealers. Uh, these are not good things to do, but these are also relatively ordinary sorts of crimes. If the law isn't there for these people, then the law isn't going to be there for you when you need it. And if you don't have the ability to recognize that, uh, then you have fallen victim to the spell that that third the uh, third legal school of thought that I wanted to talk about here, the, the, the idea of legal realism, you've fallen victim to that. Uh, and you've fallen victim to a privilege that you have that right now you're in the in-group. And the in-group tends to get the law enforced on it in ways that are less harsh and easier to withstand than the out-group does. And don't think about it in terms of... Um, uh, you know, critical race theory is going to make people's alarm bells go off because that's a current political buzzword. But the lesson of it is, if you are in the in-group, it's good for you. And if you're in the out-group, it's bad for you. You can be in the out-group. And if you're thinking about the law, you should think about it from a position of neutrality. Um, you don't know if you're in the in-group or the out-group. You don't know if the law is going to come down hard or soft on you. So why don't we write the law in a way that's fair to everyone? Yeah, and we got some really, really ugly chapters of U.S. history on what happens to the outgroups. And we should all take a lesson from that and be like, the first thing we need to make sure we do is we don't have any outgroups under the law because that's when the real trouble really hard. And we have people right now, named people, famous people in our commentariat who are advocating for those very things, although they call it under terminology and we better fight it now before it gets really ugly Burlico, i wish we had all day on this topic we will talk about it again i promise you we'll bring you back real quick let folks know where they can follow you 
uh, and keep track with you until we get you back on Hertel. And I, I bring you on for an easier topic. We'll talk, you know, beer and food trucks or something. <laughs> that that's fun also, but this is, this is the real conversation of our day. Um, I will comment on it. I'll comment on how I think things are going in these spheres. Uh, you can follow me on my Twitter feed where you'll find uh, random thoughts, uh, sometimes intemperate and vulgar at B-U-R-T-L-I-K-K-O. And every once in a while, I will uh, post an essay back up at ordinary-times.com. And uh, that's, it's always uh, feels like com- coming home when I do something like that. Yeah, he has clear the deck privileges, him and a couple other folks, his uh, running partner up in Portland there, Todd Kelly as well. Uh, both good friends of the program. We love talking to you. Thank you so much for the time today, sir. We'll, we'll, I got a feeling we'll be revisiting this topic a lot, especially this fall when the Supreme Court rejoins again. And then, of course, when we have a new Congress come next year. Thank you for the time, Bert. Appreciate you, sir. Absolutely, Andrew. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.